Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Jibe Makore, and uh, he works for EITI based in Oslo. Uh, Jibe is uh, a development economist and the Africa head of the EITI and an oil and gas mineral policy specialist. Areas of work include research, technical analysis, and advisory. Jibe, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I appreciate you taking time to talk to me. Many thanks, Sheila, uh, for the invite and looking forward to our conversation today. That's lovely. So I know that uh, the EITI has factored ESG into the overall strategy and the overall scope of work. Why? Yeah, my sense is that this is really a natural, it has been a natural evolution for, for the EITI uh, because when you talk about extractives when you talk about mining oil and gas, uh, really you cannot talk about it without talking about uh, ESG um, elements, for example, the environment uh, and social aspects. So I think with the evolution of the EHI standard from solely focusing on revenue aspects to you know, broader aspects around you know, social impacts, environmental impacts, um, and you know aspects, for example, related to contract disclosure, uh, beneficial ownership, which are broader governance, you know, uh, aspects. I think this has been almost like a natural um, uh, evolution of the of the EITI. Um, what we've seen is that increasingly investment decisions in the in the extractive sector are now informed by company performance on on ESG. Um, yet. You know, they've also, in my sense, there's been kind of a multiplicity. There is no agreed set of, you know, a governance uh, framework, as it were, to manage the ESG risks in the in the sector. Um, and also, I think the EITI comes in at a point where ESG metrics, at least, you know, traditionally have focused largely on the internal governance aspects. So issues related to board composition, uh, board governance, you know, remuneration and, and so on and so forth, as opposed to some of the broader external governance aspects, which I think the EITI is best suited to, uh, to, to address. So that, that is where the, the, the linkage is. But just to conclude on this, just to say that, you know, it, in my view, ESG, my background is in, is in the uh, uh, non-profit sector and I worked for, for a number of NGOs. ESG is not new within that sector. Uh, it's new for you know, uh, investment um, advisories and so on and so forth, but with respect to the extractives, it's not, it's not a new concept as it were. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, just again, staying with, uh, the EITI framework as, as we have known it. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that all be it that the processes and the initiatives might not have been labeled ESG, that the elements of ESG themselves, insofar as they form part of a governance of the extractives, has always been recognized by civil society, including EITA has been important and that uh, it's the investment side of things, the, 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 the finances who are a bit slow to recognize this. 
Absolutely. Uh, that is absolutely the, the case. Uh, and of course, you know, not just the investment side, but of course, and it's a tapestry on the mining oil and gas side as well. Uh, you know, some companies, I guess, you know, latched onto this quite early on. I, I think you would know early debates around corporate social responsibility, corporate social investment, all those, you know, social license to operate, all those kind of spoke to this need for recognizing ESG risks. Um, so I, I feel that it has been, at least on the extractive side, uh, it has been quite a long journey for, for uh, companies operating in other domains, economic domains, be telecoms and, and so on and so forth. Uh, it may be a different story, but for the extractive side, because of that direct interface with communities in most cases, um, the ESG question um, was material for quite a long time and in some sense was was uh, was forced onto the table much earlier than you know the current debates around the uh, ESG. Hmm. So you make an important point that uh, somehow the ESG framework in the context of extractives has a very unique role because in part of the interface between the social element, but also the governance. Uh, if we you look at things through that lens, what are the areas in your view in which ESG specifically complements the goals of uh, EITI in terms of tr uh, uh, transparency being, if you wish, the bedrock of uh, EITI? Yeah, so I think, uh... One is uh, is obviously the environmental aspects, um, you know, because the, the EITI standard, as I mentioned, that it has evolved. And what has happened is that the, the aspects that were not in the standard years ago are now in the standard. One is this aspect of, uh, you know, the environment. So uh, implementing countries have a responsibility to disclose um, Compliance, uh, number one, you need to disclose what the legal framework is, the legal and policy framework around environmental uh, impact is, uh, but also, you know, compliance with the same. And that's something that is unique to, to the EATI um, and something that I, I personally appreciate that it's not just about, you know, disclosing what the policy is, but also the practice. Um, so that's, that's definitely one aspect where I feel that, you know, there is uh, a linkage. On the social side, um, Companies that implement the EITI have to disclose all subnational uh, direct payments that they make to to local government, local governments, or local government authorities. And this payment disclosure or revenue disclosure is one that uh, animates, you know, uh, communities uh, because it's it's a revenue stream that they can easily relate to, as opposed to other. Uh, revenue streams such as, uh, you know, corporate income tax or royalties that in some sense, you know, go to treasury and where there's no um, ring fencing of those revenues, it's quite difficult to track how they then make their way back to subnational levels. So that's that's another revenue stream um, uh, or rather a, a, a disclosure where I feel that the social aspects um, uh, in relation to how that money is then used for, be it, you know, uh, social services such as education and health, there is an interlinkage there between 
uh, some ESG metrics and uh, uh, in the in the EHS, so the complementarity is, is quite, in my view, strong. On the governance side, as I mentioned before, that you know the the EHI requires aspects such as gender disaggregated um, data disclosures uh, for companies, um, but also within the the multi-stakeholder group that oversees uh, these EITI uh, disclosures in, a, in an implementing country. So there again, I find that this complementarity, but you know, this is not to say that the, the, uh, the, 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 the EITI uh, as it were fully encompasses the full scope of, uh, of ESG. Uh, I think there's still some ways to go and uh, there is ongoing work right now actually uh, that the board is doing to revise the, the standard with this look at refinements to the EITA standard to make sure that you know if this, some of these elements are further strengthened uh, where they are encouraged they become required uh, and so on and so forth so this it's just a recognition that there's still some ways to go but also that uh, the EITA there is complementarity on other aspects it actually goes uh, quite deeper than you know in my view, what can be a limited framework, uh, on particularly on the governance side. Uh, mm. so that's what I would, yeah, that's what I would say. So, you know, I, I am mindful that we live in a world today in which there is quite a lot of information, uh, a lot of data that is readily available, uh, albeit perhaps sometimes not reliable. What do you say to people who say, you know, it's one thing to disclose, but how do you know that when you disclose this information, communities have the wherewithal to consume it and to understand it in a way that it becomes meaningful to them? Mm. So the EITI standard, the way that it has evolved or has been structured is such that that question of impact is indeed part of the the standard. So requirement seven, for example, requires that implementing countries have to do an assessment and publicly disclose this assessment of EITI impact. So it goes to the heart of that question that disclosures should not be a tick box, you know, kind of exercise, or if you disclose your licenses and so on and so forth. But what is the underlying objective? what are we actually trying to achieve with the EITI? And it's a, it's a difficult question, but one that we, we have to, to grapple with. Um, so in terms of use of data, I think what, what we've seen with the EITI, at least over learnings over a couple of years, is that the EITI is more of a diagnostic tool. Uh, you know, it's not an investigative tool. Uh, but what it does is once you put out the data, there is now a responsibility on different actors, particularly, you know, um, uh, government and civil society to uh, support in terms of making this data uh, or at least presenting this data to communities in a way that they can engage with. Uh, and we've seen innovations around this, be it, you know, roadshows, abridged versions of the report, or as I mentioned earlier, you know, focusing on particular aspects that are more relevant to the communities, such as the environmental disclosures or subnational payments. Um, and there have been these uh, innovations. And because of the multi-stakeholder group, what has happened is that um, 
you know, the multi-secular groups in implementing countries have had to lean on uh, uh, the, the civil society constituency uh, more than, you know, industry or, or, or government because civil society constituency has, again, you know, low experience with, with engaging communities, um, be it on trainings and so on and so forth in, 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 in different ways that have been proven to be effective. So on outreach, once a, you know, a report is disclosed, on outreach, once disclosures are made, um, multi-stakeholder groups increasingly rely on civil society's lead in terms of, okay, this is how we engage communities now in the local language. Why don't we have visuals as opposed to, you know, these uh, voluminous reports uh, and so on and so forth. So radio shows, for example, these are things that are happening in implementing countries across, uh, uh, you know, across the continent. Yeah. Um, and has helped, yes. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I think this is a very important point to make, to say you start off uh, with the necessary data, produce reports, but then this report must then be further uh, mm -hmm. packaged uh, and presented in a way that is meaningful that the production of the report itself is not an end you, yeah. you know at grassroots level uh you, you need to do more based on your knowledge of the the needs of the audience but i i think i also like the idea that eiti does not necessarily see itself as doing the entire work that part of the collaboration with uh national civil society groups Mm -hmm. It's all part of the ecosystem, and and because I, I I'm mindful that you know local NGOs are likely to know better what the mm -hmm. needs are and what the limitations are and and what the symbols are culturally okay. that uh, speak to the audience. I, I mean, I, I want to ask you, um, you know, you make a difference between a diagnostic tool. Why is that important? And what do you mean to a lay person making that distinction? Mm. So what I mean is that the EITI disclosures, uh, be it in report format or in other ways, because now increasingly we're also talking about disclosures um, uh, within the government systems themselves, as opposed to an annual big report. Um, so where disclosures uh, are made, the, the intent, at least with the EITA requirements in terms of diagnostic, is that they show where the vulnerabilities are mm -hmm. uh, or where the risks are. So it may not, I mean, I can give an example of the case in, in Zambia where uh, disclosures, EITA disclosures, uh, indicated that for a particular, I think it was 2019-2020 license allocations, that there were irregularities in terms of that licensing uh, uh, process, at least for that year, for some licenses. Now, the EITA, you know, cannot go beyond that in, in a way. It can, but, but it's challenging to go beyond that. But what then happens is that, at least in the case of Zambia, is that the Office of the Auditor General then looked at the EITI findings and through engagement with the EITI then launched a performance uh, audit on mineral licensing for the full sector now, not just looking at uh, the particular licenses where irregularities are were identified. Um, and this then, you know, surfaced, you know, deeper problems. I think the report is public, but basically highlighting that 
the license committee had been, you know, it had not been properly constituted. You know, there was no non-compliance with the uh, license uh, requirements and so on and so forth. So again, if you look at anti-corruption cases, for example, the EITI may point to that, but you know, it's normally then the anti-corruption agencies that then have to take up this work. So EITI, and this is both an exciting part of it, but also a challenging part of it, that it requires almost a whole of government approach. Uh, it's not like some, you know, think tank uh, initiative that is sitting somewhere that can, you know, um, uh, trigger wide scale reforms without uh, being integrated within the, the, the full government machinery as, as it were. So, so, you know, this is what I mean that it can surface problems, but the, the reform, uh, you know, be it legal reform, be it practice reform, requires other, you know, other bodies or entities within government and outside government, you know, parliament, for example, may need to play a role in terms of legal reform where the deficiencies are identified in the, in the report against the, the standard. Right. So, so, yeah, that's interesting uh, because what you're saying is we go and we say, this is how the system has uh, should work. Our diagnosis shows that uh, in terms of processes standing to scrutiny, there's a flaw here. And once you flag that, it's then up to other entities to then go and investigate in detail what went wrong and surface that loophole. And then by the same token, there'll be other entities whose task is it, it is then to fix that. Uh, it, it, and so you, you, you see yourself as part of this big picture. I, I, I have to ask you, um, it's probably simplistic. The assumption here is that there's a correlation between transparency and governance as one of the key uh, corner poles of uh, governance. And so uh, EITI as a vehicle or a, a, a body advocating uh, transparency, the assumption is that if you have EITI in a country, that by definition improves uh, potentially uh, the governance. And yet, uh, if one looks at in Africa, for instance, the membership, some of the uh, governments that have been members of EITI for the longest time also perform very badly when it comes to government, a case in point is the DRC. And I wonder, what should the those who take interest in your the EITI make of this? How do we square the fact that long-standing members seem to also be unable to live up to the principles and the uh, EITI standards, or at least on some level? Mm. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I think, uh, the first point that I would mention here is that the EITI is, is implemented in quite challenging contexts, uh, not just the case of the DRC, but I mean, we can talk about other countries as well. Um, I, I, what, what has been useful is that, you know, the, we, 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 we have, the, you know, the EITI has got a validation, uh, we call it valid, it's a validation mechanism. Uh, it's basically some, it's a quality assurance um, uh, uh, you know, that assesses progress, how, how an implementing country has made progress in implementing the EITI. So we call it uh, validation. Uh, it's an independent assessment of, of, of progress against the, the EITI standard. 
and countries perform differently you know, uh, against uh, the EHS standard based on this validation mechanism. But it's an important one because it is also uh, an accountability mechanism. Uh, you do not essentially sign on to the EATI and, you know, basically say, oh, you know, we are transparent and so on and so forth. Every two years, there is a, a score uh, that comes with, with implementing the EATI. Um, and the score is not an overall score. It's a score, I find it useful because it's a score against each and every requirement. So you may score well on the legal architecture, but you're scoring poorly on the implementation on contracts disclosure. You may score well on you know, revenue transparency, but you're scoring poorly on you know, social and environmental aspects of the EATI standard. So it, it, it nuances in that sense. So yeah. I, I think with respect to, to countries that are still doing a, relatively poorly with when you look at other you know uh, indices or when you look at you know broader governance measurements that others may, may apply i think what we've seen is that even they there are substantial improvements so the base that some of these countries are starting from is quite low if you look at the drc because you know you use that that example but we can go to other countries the drc in particular um before the ATI, the DRC did not disclose its contract. Uh, it did not have a public, you know, uh, cadaster, you know, elements that are there now. For example, um, the, the, in the last year, the DRC EITI used date EITI disclosures from past years to analyze specific contracts and produce, you know, revenue analysis and focus based on those contracts. This is work that typically would not be uh, uh, at, at least before the EITI, this is work that, that was not there in the DRC. That's not to say that there are still no challenges. I think for those of, of us working in the sector, I find that, uh, yeah, that uh, we deal with what I would call wicked problems uh, in the sense that they're, they're quite challenging uh, governance issues um, that everyone working on extractive governance has to deal with. The public fit is that the, gov the governance challenges are not just national. Uh, they're also supranational because when you talk about extractive, there's a lie, there's a value chain, the commodity uh, trading, you know, you're talking about uh, um, um, uh, trading partners in, in, in other countries and so on and so forth. So oh, international, you know, multinational uh, companies operating in, in, in different jurisdictions. So it's, it's a wicked problem. But the, the, the sense that I get is that at least against the EATI standard, uh, for some of the countries, uh, for a significant number of the countries, there have been market improvements on different elements of the, uh, of the standard. Mm. Um, we've talked about uh, the challenges facing countries in the global south. Uh, it, it's, you'd have to be tone deaf not to recognize that the membership skews heavily towards uh, northern, rather southern sovereign states. Um, does this help or impede progress in the EITI and its objectives uh, that not as perhaps many numbers of countries in the north are subscribed to the standard? Um. I think it does need that to be uh, to be quite honest. I mean, the part of the this queuing membership, I think, is 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 just a natural function of the uh, some of the I'll tell the, 
uh, in old both of mine used to call them the comparative advantages of African countries that you know when we talk about for example now these debates around critical minerals the the focus is on is on the countries where these resources are located uh, that's not to say that you know some northern countries or western countries do not have uh, you know some of these resources um but that's one of the reasons why you are naturally going to have not just in africa you're going to have mostly southern countries um um you know, having to 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 at least having the resources and the challenges that come with those resources and the opportunities that come with those resources. So that's one. But two, I think we've also seen in the EITI that the you know the 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 membership is is quite diverse. Um, uh, yes, there may have been a focus uh, on oh you know the the aren't that many northern countries, but some of the biggest are there, you know, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, Norway, the, the UK are all members of the, uh, of the EITI. Um, and, you know, I, like I mentioned, if you look at Latin America, you know, we could, we could go into that, but they are significant, you know, Argentina, uh, the Philippines, you know, they're quite Asia, you know, they're quite, it's quite a diverse range of implementing uh, countries. But also, I think what I find interesting, at least in my own personal analysis, is that the EITI also has, you know, what we call supporting companies. And this community of supporting companies includes, I think it's well over 70 um, of the biggest, you know, mining, oil and gas companies. Uh, they are all, all of the major multinational companies are supporting companies. And, being a supporting company, you have to adhere to a set of expectations or, you know, uh, uh, almost in the same way that co uh, implementing countries have got uh, uh, requirements. So you have to adhere to this set of uh, expectations against which you are also measured. Um, and the supporting companies, the, the interesting bit that I wanted to bring out is that whether or not a country has signed up to the EATI, if a company is a supporting company of the EITI, they have a level of disclosure that is quite high uh, that they have to adhere to, notwithstanding whether or not a, a company, sorry, a, a country has signed up to uh, the EITI. So they have to make these disclosures even in non-EITI, in some cases in non-EITI implementing uh, countries. But I feel the community continues to grow um, as you know, I'm sure as you know that more recently, this on the continent, countries like uh, Angola and, and uh, Uganda have have, uh, have joined. And when this question is asked to me, sometimes by African officials, uh, government officials, you know, I think one of the points that I, I make is that the the you you have to look at the EITI and how it could potentially benefit the citizens uh, of your country. Uh, and not look at it within that, uh, you know, geopolitical lens of who, who else is in this. So the starting point should be, can this initiative help this country? If, if not, then, you know, you, you could look for something else. But if it can, then that should be the initial basis uh, before looking at also if, if this person is, is there, you know. Uh, and I'm particularly, you know, encouraged at least by the African countries that have uh, joined because the EITI standard, it, you know, implementing it is quite challenging. 
uh, it is quite a demanding standard, but for those that have joined, you know, I think they have seen the benefit uh, and they have not left. And often the misconception is, oh, you know, the, the EITI funding uh, uh, is largely, uh, you know, external such that, you know, if a country joins, they can, they can just continue with it because, you know, there are funds that are coming through for uh, EITI implementation. But we did an analysis uh, just two years ago that was looking at, at the cost of EIT implementation uh, that is borne by, uh, by implementing countries and it is significantly higher uh, because it's not just about you know, producing the EIT report, it's the whole machinery around uh, having a national secretariat, you know, the functioning of the multi-stakeholder group uh, that you know, the, the implementing country has to bear and these countries have borne this burden um, uh, you know, for quite a long time because they see the benefit of uh, of joining the EATI. Absolutely. Let me ask you uh, one last question because I think uh, you make an important point that, you know, true, it would be helpful to have more people. But actually what is more helpful is one country taking a view on governance and transparency and using the EI tool to help itself, period, regardless of whether somebody else is doing that. I think you are right that while the geopolitical considerations are important, but in effect, they are not going to move the needle. What's going to mm -hmm. move the needle is what happens on the ground at home. Here's my final question to you then. Uh, we, we don't hear much about the role of transparency and the uh, EID TI tool uh, when we're negotiating and discussing uh, transition to cleaner energies and when countries are negotiating at the COPs. Do you think that if uh, the negotiations were guided in part by EITI frameworks, that actually it, it, the process would be more improved and that we would move closer to the notion of uh, uh, just transition? Uh, 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 I don't think so, actually. I think, I, I think, I don't think having more of the Western countries as part of the initiative at least would bring, uh, at least within, within because the, 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 the discussions around the just transition, you know, they, they, they have multiple, um, elements to it, uh, you know, so, so, I think on some aspects, uh, you know, definitely increased transparency and you know open and accountable governance can definitely underpin uh, uh, those debates. Um, you know, for example, you know this whole issue around increased demand for transition minerals, uh, which again, you know, just as an aside, that I find that you know there's a whole lot of uh, uh, media interest around it and so on and so forth. But in my view, it's essentially dealing with the same risks that we've been dealing with for the last 10 years. It doesn't introduce, in my view, any particular new risk. Uh, what it does is that it, 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 uh, it amplifies the risks uh, with least the challenges that we've faced, um, uh, you know, whether you're dealing with, with uh, gold or diamonds, uh, but now just because it's lithium, in my view, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not an entirely new kind of 
uh, stream uh, that, that it is somewhat, somewhat made to be. Um, of course, it requires something on behalf of the governments, and this is where I feel that uh, the transparency and openness and accountable uh, governance that the EITI fosters is an important element of that. And we've been, you know, uh, uh, producing some material, um, a new recent publication that we put out called Mission Critical, that is looking at how the, the, the race for, you know, these critical minerals um, uh, amplifies those risks and what, you know, resource-rich countries can do in terms of, for example, leveraging EITI and other data sources to uh, to plan their governance. So on, on certain elements, I think it does. But when you look at uh, other aspects, I think they sit outside the scope of the EATI uh, directly. You know, they sit outside the direct scope of the EATI. Example is, you know, the recent debates from COP around uh, loss and damage, for example, which is an important element because when you reflect, I was thinking the other day that Mozambique with this LNG, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, LNG gas revenues, potential gas revenues, um, is dealing with some difficult, you know, challenges with respect to uh, inclement weather, um, you know, floods every other year, and, and so on and so forth. So, how do you square that? You know, I think so. It's, it's not an entirely divorce debate, but within the scope of the EATI, you know, I, I think. Uh, in some sense kind of currently sits outside the scope of the EATI. What I would say is that what is important in those broader debates is still that this aspect of transparency and accountable governance should underpin, you know, whatever debate is there. It cannot be something that is uh, opaque or, you know, negotiations should not be opaque uh, and the outcome of those negotiations should be, uh, should be open. That's a key, uh, I think, uh, uh, true note that should guide, you know, the, the, the negotiations around some of these aspects. Fantastic. Well, uh, Gilbert, thank you very much uh, for spending time with me this morning. I enjoyed uh, our discussion.